That Ludwig announced the change. Okay. So there will yes. be a coffee break. Welcome back. Um, we're going to have an hour's session now, a coffee break, and then an hour's session, a uh, 15 minute coffee break, and then an hour's session. 15 minutes. 15, 15, not minutes 5 Minutes coffee break. And then we'll have an a question, a question and answer session um, in the last period. So over to Professor. Thank you. Um, I already introduced my ch uh, chapter, the subject is the origin of interest, and I <coughs> reformulated the basic questions. So now I'm going to go through the details of this to make, help, you make, uh, uh, help you to see and understand uh, what I really mean. But before I do that, I uh, want to call your attention to the analogy which I'm doing here with what Menger had done in his Grundsätze, uh, 1871. One of the most important parts of that little book is the explanation of the origin of money. So now, I'm not going to get up and run back and forth, but if you take notes, please write down origin of money, and then it's one left, left column, and the right column is the origin of interest. And the origin of money is Original Manger. This is a very great piece of science, how money came into being. Because we all know there was originally what in English we call direct exchange of goods. The people in the market brought their surpluses and there was no such thing as money but they still want to, wanted to make the exchange because you were short of something but you had a surplus of something else. So you went around with your surplus and find the people who had surplus of what you had a deficit and then you made the exchange. But this is very clumsy and very difficult because you had to find, you had to find these pairs who had matching needs. And, and uh, this in itself was time-consuming and troublesome. So people developed a system. Suppose I have a surplus of A, and, uh, and Sandeep has a surplus of B. But it doesn't match what I am looking for, because I'm looking for C. You see, these A, B, C stand for different commodities. You can uh, imagine what it is. It's not important for my purposes, just the fact that they are different and matching or not matching. So, rather than this cumbersome way of seeking out a matching uh, pair, I 
am a smart guy and I noticed that even though I don't need D, that's now a fourth commodity, I want C, he has B, but I noticed that there is a special commodity, call it D, which is something I don't need. However, had, if I had D, I would be much, I could make the exchange much more easily because D is somehow more in demand than others. So it's easier to get rid of. Okay? Uh, ultimately, you will find that this D is gold. gold. You see? Now, it won't take one, two days, or a week, or a month. It might take several hundreds of years, and we don't even know. Because this was before writing uh, was invented. We call it indirect exchange. And this is all Karl Menger, you see. And there's nothing in this set of notes about this, because that's in Grundsätze. You see, the most important piece of Menger's contribution to economic science. How, perhaps you write this up, how direct exchange, this should be on the left column, was turned into indirect exchange. And indirect exchange means that money makes the swap, the exchange, the direct exchange, indirect because it's easier to uh, paradoxical as it is, but instead of one exchange, we find that it's easier to make two exchanges. One is sale, and the other is purchase. You see, so you sell, which means that you exchange your surplus to that medium, D which ultimately has been many, many different commodities playing the role of D. But ultimately, it all converged to gold, because that could beat every other commodity. And we don't have to ask the reason why. Well, that's just the way it happened. And if it wasn't gold, but it was silver, or not silver, but something else again, so be it. But the fact is that there is always one. Because why? And this is how Menger answered the question. He introduced the concept of marketability. <laughs> and, and what this means is, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, you have to jump on that. <laughs> that you have to invent something which corresponds to the bid price and the ask price. That I have not worried about finding uh, 
but we are not allowed to say the word price yet because we don't have the yet. We are just in the process of feeling our way around and trying to, oh, that's it. This is going to do it. So, uh, you see, I'm not lecturing on manger here. I'm just trying to give you this idea of the origin of money. And there is something which measures the marketability of good, of a good, any good, but without using the word price. So let's accept intuitively that by trial and error you can test various goods, how easy it is to get rid of. And, if, and that's one thing. And once you have it, how easy it is to get rid of this one. Uh, so how is it to get it when you sell, and how is it easy to, when you buy in terms of that? And through these infinitely many trial and errors, there will become a consensus this, this good is rather poor marketability, this is a little better, this is medium, and then better and better, and ultimately you find the best. The good with the best, the top marketability. And as I say, it may take hundreds of years, or we don't know, it could have taken a thousand years or more, but ultimately the market came to agreement that gold is the best and silver may be the second best. Or it could be that it was even the other way around first. Silver was actually more marketable than gold. We don't know that and I'm not really concerned with that question here. I'm just uh, trying to give you a nutshell uh, or a bird's eye view of what Menger has done. He started with the question, how did money originate? And this is what he came up with. And uh, there, there are of course lots of questions you can ask here and so on, but I'm just stopping here. And uh, <coughs> uh, summarizing one sentence, it's uh, a matter of finding the most marketable good and passing from direct exchange, which is a barter, I haven't used that word, but that's the obvious barter, and uh, come to direct exchange, which is making two exchanges out of one, which looks like making it more complicated, but actually it's making much, much simpler because you break up the barter into two steps. Perhaps you write this now. Selling and buying. So we started out with, with A, which I had a surplus of. Uh, so I sold A, got D, which we agreed was gold, 
and then whatever I wanted to buy. Okay? And this intermediate step. And that is the case that Menger makes a very high point of this, that you may not need gold as such at all. But still, if you have to, if you want to get rid of your surplus, you should consider yourself very lucky if you can get gold. Because once you got the gold, then you've solved 90% of your problem, because then you just have to buy. And the chances were very good that you will be able to buy. If for anything you can get what you want, call it B or C or whatever, you, all you have to do is to offer gold and uh, it was an almost foregone conclusion that you'll be able to make the purchase. So the crux of the matter was to get gold because then your 90% of your job was done. So this is the origin of money. It was a uh, evolution. People were groping for uh, the highest, the commodity with the highest marketability. It took a long time, and a lot of failures, but ultimately they came up with gold for whatever reason. We are not interested in the reason, it's just a fact which has happened. And it's, it's not easy to change either. This is another story, but I just mentioned, because it may come up in your mind, well, why not change it? We tried gold, and now we try something else. There's a very good reason why a change is practically impossible. Uh, and the reason is that Gold is the only substance which exists in our economy in a very large quantity relative to the exchange value. So, in other words, if you suggest that, okay, we have from Tomorrow it will be platinum, and forget about gold, forget about silver, we just, government declares platinum. And they tried it in Russia, as we all know. There are a lot uh, platinum coins issued by Tsarist Russia, but it never succeeded, never had a chance. And the reason is that the amount of platinum in existence was just not big enough. You see? So, in order to make platinum the top marketability commodity, you would have to match the size of stocks, the stores which the world has of gold. And that would take uh, more than a hundred years, and in the meantime, a new government, a new uh, set of guys who have influence in these matters may change their minds. So it's just a hopeless uh, suggestion if you want for any reason to change from gold.
is is uh, also almost an impossible suggestion. Not because any merit of gold as such, it's just by virtue of the fact that gold exists in sufficient quantity. Uh, it's like this. Let's express how many years of gold production would it take to duplicate the present stock of gold available in the world, above ground. Uh, how many years of production at present rates of production would be necessary? And this has been calculated and various numbers have been uh, kicked around. And it's not really important. The important thing is that it's it's a two-digit number. Somebody even goes to say it's approximating 100. Some people say, no, no, it's closer to 50. For my purposes, it's neither here nor there. But compare it with something as common as copper, or you can take something else, and you find that the number, oh yes, in other words, let me just uh, summarize this. Uh, the question was how many years uh, of production at present rate uh, would take to duplicate the present stock of gold. And so let's say 50. Okay, doesn't, just for the sake of argument, let's say this number is 50. It takes 50 years of production gold production at the present rates of output in order to have the same amount of gold once again. But now take copper and maybe some of you will be surprised but I'm sure those who have been with us for previous sessions won't find it surprising that it takes a fraction of the year to reproduce the available copper stocks, stores of copper, uh, usable. So I'm not meaning copper ore underground. Or, no, copper which can be taken and used, you can use it. So while in the case of gold it's a high multiple, in the case of copper and almost all other goods, it's a small fraction of a year which we take to reproduce it. This is a very important fact and it should be spelled out in this way and uh, not obscured in some other ways, because that shows that gold is not scarce at all by that standard. In fact, it's the most abundant, uh, and, and that would confuse people, of course, because uh, the, this is the sometimes called the paradox of, of gold. Gold is not valuable because it's scarce. Far from it. It's not scarce, it's the most abundant in terms 
Ja, vi hade word for that. Stocks to flow. Hmm? Stocks to flow. Yeah, stock. Yeah, that's right. Could you explain this in a few words? Yeah, so stocks to flow is is the ratio of marketable marketable gold, as it were, in bar form, which pretty much all gold is, compared to um, the primary production. So um, An annual primary direction. annual production, and. Um, it's very important to, to get a grip of that because it basically implies that gold has a constant marginal utility. You will keep on accepting gold and there won't be any sort of cut-off point where you said, I've got enough gold. Whereas with copper and everything else, there is a sort of cut-off point and it's reflected in such a low stock-to-flow ratio. Fractions as opposed to multiples. You know, gold sticks out like a sore thumb. And if you want to compare it to platinum, platinum is similar to copper in terms of its stocks to flow. It would only take four months annual production to replace the above ground stock of uh, platinum. So it might be called precious metal, but it's not in the same league mm. as uh, gold and silver. Thank you, Sandeep. And uh, uh, as I say, this is Manger's theory of origin of money. Now. Perhaps you can turn the page now because we start. We start. The top line is origin of interest. All right. Now you can sit down a little bit because I'm going to talk and then I'll. I'll let you know. <laughs> what a wonderful idea to have a chairman who you can boss around. <laughs> I'm very grateful to you. We'll have to take turns. Some of you will be asked, you know, to take over from him. It's too much to ask one man to do this throughout the course. But I will need a chairman for every session. And as you see, because of the complication of climbing through chairs, uh, it just doesn't work, so we have to give that job to the chairman. All right. So here, in the question of origin of interest, I want to break new grounds. As I explained in the first hour, I want to discard this question, what happens when a man with a need to borrow meets a man with money to lend. This is completely false start. I start with the question, what happens when there is somebody with a surplus of income, deficit of wealth, meets another man who has the opposite. He would have a deficit of income and surplus of wealth. Now typically, but not exclusively, the first guy would be a young man, energetic, lots of physical energy, maybe lots of mental energy, maybe <coughs> lots of both, 
but a minimum of each, obviously, so he has an income. He has a power to generate more income than he needs for his present, to cover his present consumption. And typically, but not exclusively, the other guy would be an elderly man who is already in his harvest years. He may still work around like I am, <laughs> trying to establish a university which will fill a gap in the world because this stuff is not being taught anywhere else. And, uh, but that's a marginal thing for him uh, because his powers, my power, declining. Do I ever know that? <laughs> Mental and physical. But still I'm around and I'm, I can do a little good. Uh, and I'm supposed to have a lot of assets, a lot of wealth. Well, I don't. <laughs> because probably I was in the wrong profession all my life, in the teaching profession. But uh, typically an elderly man should have uh, assets. Well, uh, sure enough, I have a pension fund, okay? In fact, I'm drawing three pensions. One of the, them is the old age uh, pension in Canada, and then I subscribe to a Canadian government pension plan. Uh, these are very minor, the, in the order of a few hundred dollars a month, so you definitely couldn't live on. The, a major portion of my pension is the university pension plan to which I have contributed over 35 years, or no, say 35. And that gives me a livable income, but for how long and how secure it is. I mean, the same university which is paying my present pension in 1933 cut all pensions into half and said from one day to the next, you are a pensioner, your income is cut into half. And that's that, you know. Take it or leave it. And, and <laughs> the nominal pension of my father in the year 1945, was not cut, but the value of the money was cut and cut again and cut again, and ultimately it was worth zero. But the pension wasn't wasn't increased, you know. And these are facts. Same thing that was after World War II. Now my grandfather, who was a very wealthy, not wealthy but well-to-do man, uh, was an engineer by profession and he was in the employment of the government. And after Hungary ended up on the losing side in the war, my grandfather's pension slowly but surely approached zero. So he, he died in 1929. By that time his, he couldn't live on his, his pension. And even uh, his burial cost more than one month. So, okay, uh, this is the pro problem then, that uh, if I add up all my assets, my 
three pensions. I mean, I capitalize it and I say, okay, uh, assume I live for another 10 or 15 years. What's the, uh, you know, expectation what's the, that I will be able to collect? And the, there are problems. I may end up with a large, large number if I count all my assets, but how secure is it? I am very doubtful that I could live out of my three pensions uh, if I live, say, more than five years from now. I'm very, very doubtful. So I, you know... Uh, now, we started out with this idea of uh, two types of people. I, might say the young generation and the old generation, but the, the point is not that young or old, but it is whether you have a surplus of income which you could convert into wealth and vice versa. You have surplus of uh, wealth you could convert into income. And you will need that because you will get old, like it or not. And uh, therefore, there is a problem, several problems come up, but the first one is converting income into wealth and vice versa. Convert income into wealth and convert separately, convert wealth into income. And I'm not asking Sandeep to write it is done, but I suggest you do. There is a big, big motivation behind this. Because as you get older, you will need... So, uh, as, as you grow old, you need the first conversion, and when you've reached your harvest years, uh, in other words, when you retire, then you are dependent on the second conversion. And here is the answer. You need a, the marketability idea comes up again, you see. In the case of Menger, marketability, explaining the origin of money, was really at the heart of the matter. The same thing here. What we are going to discuss